Hello and welcome to episode 24 of Celluloid Junkies. I'm Damien Heath and I'm joined by my co-host Luke Kane. Luke, how's your 2019 going so far? It's going really nicely. Thank you all for joining us this month. Right now, we're stuck deep in no man's land, about to engage in debate about the merits of Stanley Kubrick's early anti-war film, Paths of Glory. Since the publication of the book 25 years ago, no one dared to make this movie. It was too shocking, too frank. Sort of casualties do you anticipate, sir? Mm, say, 5% killed by our own barrage. It's a very generous allowance. 10% more in going through no man's land. And 20% more into the wire. That leaves 65% for the worst part of the job over. Let's say another 25% in actually taking the anthill. We're still left with a force more than adequate to hold it. General, you're saying that more than half my men will be killed. Aside from the inescapable fact that a good many of your men never left the trenches, there's the question of the troops' morale. Don't forget that. The troops' morale? Sir. Certainly. These executions will be a perfect tonic for the entire division. There are a few things more fundamentally encouraging and stimulating than seeing someone else die. Fire in heaven's name, are they? On the left. Where are the rest? Zero plus one and they're still in the trenches. They're not advancing. Miserable cowards. They're not advancing. The barrage is getting away from them. They're still in the trenches. Captain Nichols. Yes, sir. Order 75 to commence firing on our own positions. Picture it. The Western Front in Champagne, France, March 10th, 1915. Are you Sophia from the Golden Girls? Yes. World War I is still in its first year and the Germans have invaded France. Two months of relative inactivity and failed attacks have made the French army anxious for a successful movement against the Germans. An order is made for French troops to retake an area north of the village of Souain, which was earlier taken by the enemy. However, an early morning artillery barrage drops shells on the French troops instead of the Germans by accident. And when the troops leave the trenches to move into position, they are gunned down in large numbers thanks to the Germans' undamaged firearms. The remaining troops refuse to leave the trenches, knowing that the movement is going to end in failure and further casualties. General Ravaliak, in charge of the troops, orders his divisional artillery to open fire on their countrymen in order to make them attack, but the commanding artillery officer refuses to obey this order. The attack is halted. Ravaliak instead orders 24 men, including 6 corporals and 18 lower-ranked troops, to face a court-martial and charges of cowardice upon penalty of death. This was intended to set an example to other members of the French armed forces. All 24 men were found guilty, however all 18 lower-ranked troops were granted clemency as they were chosen randomly from the ranks, and two corporals were also relieved from the penalty as they had not heard the order to attack. Four men, all corporals, had their sentences carried out, including a 40-year-old father of two, a 30-year-old father, a 28-year-old father and a 23-year-old. They were executed by firing squad on March 17th, just one week after the failed attack. The four men were exonerated of their charges on March 3rd, 1934, 19 years after their execution. 
The style of court-martial used for this case was abolished on April 24th of 1916, demonstrating the injustice of a trial with no right to appeal. The Swain Corporal's Affair, as it is now known, is regarded as the most egregious and most publicised military injustice during World War I. Fast forward to the mid-1950s, and photographer and documentary filmmaker Stanley Kubrick had begun to transition into feature films with his debut Fear and Desire and follow-up Killer's Kiss, both of which were original screenplays written by Howard Sackler, although the latter was co-written by Kubrick himself. His first two features received lukewarm reviews, but generally Kubrick's direction was praised. Following the release of Killer's Kiss, Kubrick serendipitously met producer James B. Harris, with whom he would form Harris Kubrick Pictures Corporation. Under this banner, the director would produce two films that garnered him critical acclaim and notoriety. First up was film noir The Killing, based on a book by relative newcomer Lionel White. It was the first of Kubrick's features with an adapted screenplay, and Kubrick was able to get Sterling Hayden, who'd previously starred in The Asphalt Jungle and Johnny Guitar, for the lead role. United Artists gave him a budget of $200,000, and Kubrick self-financed a further $130,000. While the film stalled at the box office, several critics named it to year-end top ten lists. This newfound critical success allowed Kubrick to work with Harris to get the rights to the late Humphrey Cobb's 1935 novel Paths of Glory. Cobb had written the book as a journalistic account of his experiences during World War I, and the title was taken from the 1751 Thomas Gray poem Elegy Written in a Country Churchyard. Harrison Kubrick, who'd read the book when he was young, paid $10,000 to the widow of Humphrey Cobb to acquire the rights and were granted a budget of just under a million dollars by United Artists who were interested when Kubrick came to them with Kirk Douglas already attached to Star. Douglas took home about one-third of the budget, but that still left Kubrick with a healthy allowance of more than $600,000 to shoot the film itself. Jim Thompson, who had co-written The Killing with Kubrick, wrote an early draft of the screenplay before it was handed to Calder Willingham, who would go on to write The Graduate a decade later. Kubrick, Thompson and Willingham ended up in arbitration with the Writers Guild when each man's contribution to the screenplay was disputed. Filming took place almost entirely in Bavaria, Germany, and more specifically near Munich, over the course of eight weeks in March, April and May of 1957. The film premiered in Munich on November 1st, before being released in the United States in December. Reports state that the film broke even and was possibly even a modest box office success, but critical acclaim was undeniable. It received a nomination for Best Film at the BAFTAs, losing out to David Lean's The Bridge on the River Kwai, and was, in 1992, selected for preservation by the Library of Congress in the National Film Registry. It also generated great controversy, something that would accompany Kubrick throughout the rest of his career. The film wasn't shown in France until 1975, or in Spain until 1986, or uncensored in Switzerland until 1970. It was withdrawn from the Berlin Film Festival in Germany so as not to strain relations with France, and banned at American army bases throughout Europe by the United States military. On a happier note, Kubrick met his wife during the filming of Paths of Glory, the film's only female speaking role, that of a captured German woman singing to French troops at the end of the movie, was given to Christiane Suzanne Harlan, who'd marry her director in 1958, shortly after the film's release. Their marriage produced two daughters and lasted until Kubrick's death in 1999. Luke, how did you enjoy your trip down Stanley's path? I really loved it. I didn't expect to. When you picked this movie, I was like, ugh. <laughs> a war film from the 50s. But it's not really a war film. It's a political film with a war backdrop and I was surprised at how emotionally compelling it was it's very grim very devastating film but it's so concise and tense 
that it doesn't become maudlin or depressing. Really, it doesn't become depressing. It has like that snappy staccato style of the Warner Brothers films from the 30s, but combined with the kind of the visual magnificence of the Cinemascope films that were actually coming out around this time. I had the same reaction when I stated that we'd be doing this film because uh, neither of us had seen it. It was one of those ones that's just been on my list forever my list of films to watch. And so I thought, hey, I really want to watch this film and I really want to make Luke watch it, so let's do an episode on it. <laughs> and uh, also you had previously turned down my request to do 2001 A Space Odyssey and I had a Kubrick itch that I needed to scratch. Yeah, well, I'm just not ready for 2001. I will see it one day. Yeah, you still haven't seen it, which is just crazy. It is, it is. It's probably the most glaring omission from the list of films that I haven't seen. Now, I do need to just... Uh, just in case anybody actually listens to our podcast to the very end. Or at all. On the last episode, uh, I did choose this film and I chose it just before we announced it. And I did say that it was courtroom drama and you willingly went along with that and said that it was courtroom drama. It's not. It's got a court martial in it. It's a war film. It's an anti-war film. The, the courtroom scenes in this film are very slim well, there's really one scene. Yes, that's right. And so, you know, that was that was inaccurate. I think it's a hard film to classify. It is pretty hard, yeah. I mean, you say it's a war film, but it's not like... It's, I mean, the majority of war films, especially that were coming out in the 50s, were pro-war films. Yeah. Well, not... not I don't know about the majority, but there, were, there was some really big examples of pro-war films, you know, those patriotic big films, and this is not one of them. No, it isn't. And it's also um, really only got one scene of actual warfare. Yeah, uh, which is amazing. That scene is just stunning. Anybody who's listening to this podcast who has seen it, obviously, would, would have to agree with that. Well, hopefully, if they're listening, they have seen it, because, as you know, we, we spoil the shit out oh, of these yeah. films. So. Yeah. so Kubrick, at the time that Paths of Glory was made, was not Kubrick. You know, he wasn't the name on the credits that the director would become, that so few directors have become over time. Kubrick was definitely one of them. You know, you've got Kubrick, you've got Scorsese, you've got David Lean, you've got John Huston. Later, you've got Steven Spielberg and James Cameron. And, you know, the name becomes the star. The name of the director becomes the star. But Paths of Glory was just a film by an unknown. I can't believe in that list you didn't mention Hitchcock. Who? Who's that? (laughs) (laughs) You're right. No, he didn't. He was 28 years old. He hadn't had a really big hit. He'd had a movie that was well-received, The Killing. He definitely hadn't had a big hit. No, and I mean, you know, he had independently financed his films up up to the point of Paths of Glory, and he wasn't the Kubrick that had carte blanche over, you know, what he could do. I mean, his later films obviously are a little bit more indulgent. He's more confident. He's less afraid to let shots linger, to let moments linger. With Paths of Glory, he knew he knew he needed a hit. And he was thinking commercially. And that's something that Kubrick wouldn't do for very long after this movie. He was less afraid to have that kind of meditative tone that Kubrick has. He, he, he does let his shots linger. I mean, one thing that I read was that he made Adolphe Menjou, who played General Brulard in this film, he made him do, you know, very well-regarded actor, been acting since the, the 20s, I think. He made him do one scene... 27 times or something and Menju ended up chucking an absolute tantrum about it. <laughs> yeah, apparently on like the 37th take he said, that's my best reading. <laughs> and, <laughs> and Kubrick made him do it again, I think. And then he, apparently he screamed at Kubrick, had a big like, I don't have to take this type rant and then Kubrick said, 
Okay, we're ready to go again. <laughs> Very gently, and he did it again. The most shocking thing I read, you know, sort of extra textual thing I read about this film was that Kubrick even considered putting a happy ending on the movie. Mm. And apparently, well, this is from Kirk Douglas in his autobiography. Apparently Kirk Douglas shut that down and said, no, we're not doing that. But I think that shows the lengths Kubrick was willing to go to have a hit mm. because, you know, all of Kubrick's films are pretty nihilistic and this one is too but to consider that it you know wouldn't it's so un-Kubrickian to think that this could have actually had it oh well and Douglas gets them off and they go home to their families yeah very hard to imagine and I mean he had already changed the role of Colonel Dax so much from the real life counterpart in real life I read that he had kind of stepped aside to allow these things to happen where he is far more proactive in passing judgement on them in the movie well yeah I mean Paths of Glory is so much about compromise and one of the compromises Kubrick had to make was the initial script had obviously been more of an ensemble which is something that we would see in later Kubrick's films you know they are very much ensemble pieces or most of them are with a few exceptions like The Shining and Eyes Wide Shut Mm. and Clockwork Orange I suppose but one of the stipulations was to get this made he needed a star and then when Kirk Douglas expressed interest, it became clear that they were going to need to make it a star vehicle. In real life, Colonel Dax, he made it known that he wasn't comfortable with it, yeah. but ultimately stepped aside and let the executions go without putting up much resistance. And that's obviously not what we get in Paths of Glory. Yeah. You know, Kirk Douglas very strong in it. Obviously, Paths of Glory, as we've said, was made with so many restrictions that Kubrick just wouldn't face later, uh, especially following his move to the UK and after doing Lolita and Doctor Strangelove. It was hugely dependent on a star, and that was part of the reason that it got the financing that it got. Ultimately, even despite that, it was more limited in budget than the majority of Kubrick's later works, and it was released in uh, within the studio system. So despite that reception that The Killing had received the year before, Kubrick still had very little clout, and obviously the further he go into his career, this changed. His, his name, as I said, became the star, and he was given, as you said, carte blanche to create his own vision with such few restrictions. And I think you can see a lot of the restrictions in Paths of Glory in the... Uh, construction of the story especially so it's it's more linear than i think anything he he does he he has very few asides it's tighter than most kubrick films it doesn't have those long shots someone comes in they says what they says what they need to say (laughs) they say what they (laughs) they say what they need to say and then you move on to the next scene where another character comes in and says what they need to say (laughs) damien stepped out and eliza doolittle has sat down um, but it's it's not meditative or contemplative like the majority of Kubrick's later films. The scene in this film that gets as close to later Kubrick as we get is the final scene with Christiane. Yes. I mean, look, for me, there are, there are flashes throughout where you go, ah, oh, that's right, Kubrick's directing this film. The big one for me is the tracking shot of Douglas through the trenches, which is so impressive. Yeah. That kind of foreshadows the fluid tracking shots that, Kubrick would later kind of they would become his signature but also the oversized rooms that you know and set pieces that make the actors look puny the grandiosity of the court martial the beautiful shot where the camera tracks Douglas as he's making his case and in the foreground we get the backs of the three accused there's some amazing set pieces in this film and they are so detailed I mean I remember watching I don't know if you watched it with me but there was that documentary Stanley Kubrick's Boxes and it was about the journalist who went to Stanley Kubrick's house and found just boxes and boxes and boxes and boxes of research for his films. And one of them was f- for a door on a building, a red door on a building. That was for Eyes Wide Shut. And there was, 
a whole box full of photographs and research about what's the best kind of door, what's it going to look like, how's it going to be positioned in the frame. Thousands yeah. of photographs of doors. Yeah, so, you know, that's just one. And it's, obviously this is why his films took somewhere between half a decade to a decade and a half to get made later in life. Is I think the gap between Full Metal Jacket and Eyes Wide Shut, the release of each of them was 12 years. Uh, and he'd been working on AI for a long time uh, when he died. Which is sadly why we got so few. Yes, it is. But at the same time, if you take that away, uh, I guess the level of brilliance inherent in the films that we did get would be less. Yeah, they would suffer in quality for sure. Mm. But I think the result of some of these changes, some of these restrictions, is that as a viewer, we have or we are asked to invest less of our own thoughts on kind of ambiguous actions because there's not really too much ambiguity in a film like this. That, for me, is the biggest difference between Paths of Glory and the later majority of the director's output. Something like A Clockwork Orange, where there is this just hyper-violent gang of youths you are still not necessarily asked to judge those people. So, you know, that's a really good example of the ambiguity being present in a later Kubrick film, but not being present here. Yeah, I mean, with A Clockwork Orange, I think you probably do judge them because the the violent scenes are so awful and so de-glamorised. I know that's not a word, but it's sort of what... Um, uh, is it Michael Henneke did with Funny Games? Yeah. Where the violence is, there's no technique used to make the violence really exciting and visceral. It's sort of usually static shots, and that makes the violence unbearable in a lot of ways. The thing with Clockwork Orange is that once he starts to become cured, you start to feel sympathy for him, and that makes you feel sick. So there is a lot of ambiguity in that film, and a lot of where am I supposed to place my emotions here? Whereas, like you say, Paths of Glory, it's very clear. There's a very clear focus. For me, I mean, Paths of Glory is really about classism. I agree. I think that's the main thing that you take away from this uh, yeah. from this movie is the class system and also what that means for human life. Yeah, and Kubrick doesn't comment on the war itself until the very end scene. I mean, we've got to remember that this was a defensive war. You know, it wasn't something that America or France asked for. We had to go to war with Germany to protect our civil liberties and to protect our freedom. He never shows us a single German soldier, mm. which is something that's commented on quite quite frequently with this film. We only know they're there because there's grenades and the bombs keep falling near the trenches. And many have speculated on why this is. I think that it's because Kubrick doesn't want the foreign threat to distract us from the real villains of his story, which are, of course, the high-ranking officers represented by General Brulard and General Moreau. And I think his criticism is very, very specifically on the army itself. I agree with you. If you, if you show the Germans fighting against the France, that's war. If you show the French fighting against the French, that's a war crime. I mean, the outrage of the movie is so clear. You know, we have so many shots of the high-ranking officers sitting in chateaus and discussing the day's casualties whilst buttering their scones, while the, you know, low-ranking soldiers are dying on command. Also, they can score another badge or another medal on these high-ranking officers' uniforms. You know, that's that's the price of their life. And they make a comment on the number of medals on one of their jackets at one point during the movie. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I liked this quote from Stanley Kubrick. He said, War acts as a kind of hothouse for forced quick breeding of attitudes and feelings. Attitudes crystallise and come out in the open. Conflict is natural when it would in a less critical situation have to be introduced almost as a contrivance and would thus appear forced or even worse, false. Mm -hmm. So 
classism looked at inside a situation as volatile as an armed forces in the act of war, you can that classism becomes so extreme because it's not just about poverty and you know other things that you know classism has to do with it's life or death as we said this is a war film but it's it's definitely a political film kubrick doesn't let those who run things and i'm talking about the troops the war or the country off easily in this film there's definitely judgment given some of the charges leveled against those in charge include both crimes against humanity and war crimes injustice and false or unfair trials and shameless political bartering and gamesmanship you know for instance shooting on one's own troops to get them to move out of the trenches and onto the battlefield was a war crime picking soldiers randomly by lot and executing them to set an example was a crime against humanity The court-martial without appeal was an unfair trial where injustice prevailed, and the ascension of those who called for all of these things was brought about by bartering and gamesmanship at the expense of others, whether it be the, uh, the lives, the careers, or the morals of the others, or themselves. Even in the last couple of decades, it's become it's it's come to the fore that some senior officers during World War One used executions, particularly of weaker, more unfit, or even just shorter soldiers, as a way of strengthening their own squadron. So this has come out. I think it was two thousand and one that this came out. So there's a lot that the film is unable to indict upon. But what it does is pretty damning already. Many people have noted that generals during World War One were highly criticised post-war for being spectators rather than soldiers. And uh, there's a quote here from the journalism website Scraps from the Loft, which looks at the film. It says, They were well-fed and luxuriously housed. They demanded the impossible and seemed ready to accept massive losses for minor gain. And this is really specifically and accurately represented when Moreau talks so matter-of-factly to Colonel Dax about the percentages of troops he will u- lose during the raid on the anthill. What sort of casualties do you anticipate, sir? Mm, say 5% killed by our own barrage. That's a very generous allowance. 10% more in getting through no man's land and 20% more getting through the wire. That leaves 65% with the worst part of the job over. Let's say another 25% in actually taking the anthill. We're still left with a force more than adequate to hold it. The 60% which is more than half, but at the same time, it's just a number. And the quote is, naturally, men are going to have to be killed. Yeah, and it's really funny when he says, oh, 5%, I'm being generous there. Mm. I was like, well, who's being generous with these people's lives? I know that he doesn't mean generous in that sense, but it's a funny word to use, and who is ultimately going to be responsible for that? Well, the fact that casualties will be had is not a foreign concept in war. I mean, you go into a war and you expect that that's going to be the case. There's going to be a certain percentage of people that are killed. I'm sure there's people that behind the scenes, they look at the numbers every time they make those decisions, especially these days, because I would say you were going to lose 60% of your troops trying to do something to day it wouldn't happen but then during our lifetime we haven't been in a war where land was at stake in one of our countries or one of the countries that we get a a huge amount of news or insight from so you know the uk and the us and australia they haven't potentially lost land they haven't been taken over by another country another people which is what was happening in world war one and world war two the wars these days yes I, i think in the middle east and and in african nations they do have that threat, potentially. There's mostly, I think, religious insurgency. So that's as close as we get to it these days. But certainly the things that happen in war now are different from what we're looking at on screen when we watch something like Paths of Glory. The importance of defending a piece of land at the expense of lives is probably a little bit lost on us. 
Yeah, and also you've got to think about, you know, the etiquette of war has changed. Yes. I mean, you know, Vietnam was the start of that, but certainly Iraq, it's sort of a chaos, whereas there was certainly a a sense of orderliness and a sense of playing fair (laughs) on both sides, and that changes everything. But in the opening scene, Moreau is saying that he is not going to put his men in harm's way, that he's not going to let his ambition get in the way of his ambition allow him to put men in danger needlessly in a hopeless situation. But, of course, within a couple of minutes of their talking, he is. (laughs) Once Once he's bribed... Yeah. by Broulard with a higher post. Yeah. Then suddenly, ah, oh, I guess it's okay. I guess we can storm the anthill. It's just very disturbing. And then when he goes and talks to Colonel Dax about it and is talking about those percentages, it's the flippancy mm. that's that's disturbing. That's right. It's how little regard is given to those human lives and the casual nature of that conversation, which makes it alarming. And in that, you know, Colonel Dax's first scene when he, he quotes, I think, Samuel Johnson about patriotism... Yeah is when we first get the sense that he is a little cynical and a little beaten down and also has a bit of a repulsion with the hierarchical structure of the army that he isn't quite comfortable about it. He's a bit rogue. Patriotism may be old-fashioned, but show me a patriot and I'll show you an honest man. Well, not everyone has always thought so. Samuel Johnson had something else to say about patriotism. And what was that, may I ask? Well, nothing really. What do you mean, nothing really? Well, sir, nothing really important. Colonel, when I ask a question, it's always important. Now, who was this man? Samuel Johnson, sir. All right, now, what did he have to say about patriotism? He said it was the last refuge of the scoundrels, sir. Uh, I'm sorry, I meant nothing personal. You're tired, Dax. You're very tired. It's you who are exhausted, not your men. And it's my fault. I've given you one impossible task after another. You need rest. Well, you need it badly. And you never would either. Therefore, you're not going to have any say-so about it, Colonel. As from right now, I'm ordering you on indefinite furlough. And I think that Kirk Douglas plays this role really well because he knows that the numbers are not good the chances are not good but he's been given an order and so he carries it out and he, he makes demands of his troops without being inhumane yeah he and does. that's the, that's the difference between uh colonel dax and moreau and Brulard. one thing that kubrick does in the first i'd say 10 minutes of this film is really comment on the absurdity of being at war hmm. almost like he's trying to give the characters an excuse for their behaviour later on. Especially when Moreau is walking through the trenches and is talking to those men. He's like, are you ready to kill some Germans today? (laughs) And um, it's like a pep talk. I know he asked the same question to four or five different troops. (laughs) To three. Uh. And I thought it was a little too neat that the three that he talks to happen to be the three that go on trial. I liked, during that sequence, the guy who was suffering from shell shock. I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, standing next to him is the guy that drew the straw. Mm. And he's the one that explains to Murray he is shell-shocked. Mm. Yeah, that was terribly sad. Hello there, soldier. Ready to kill more Germans? That is, everything all right, soldier? All right. Yes, sir, I'm all right. <laughs> Good fella. Are you married, soldier? Married? Me married? Yes, have you got a wife? A wife? Have I got a wife? He's a bit shell-shocked. I beg your pardon, Sergeant. There is no such thing as shell-shock. Have you got a wife, soldier? My wife? My wife? Yes, I have a wife. I'm never going to see her again. I'm going to be killed. Get a grip on yourself. You're acting like a coward. I am a coward, sir. Snap out of it, soldier! Sergeant, I want you to arrange for the immediate transfer of this baby out of my regiment. 
I won't have other brave men contaminated by him. Yes, sir. Carry on, Sergeant. You were right, sir. This sort of thing could spread if it isn't checked. It was an interesting inclusion. I don't think I've seen that in a movie before. Really? Then I don't watch a lot of war movies. Well, he's a shell shock denier, which is a very interesting thing. And I suppose maybe in 1916 that was credible, but watching it today, it's just totally incredible that he wouldn't believe in it. His response there, Moreau's response there, is inhumane. In the opening scenes, we see that happen. And I think in his second conversation, he asks the French soldier if he's ready to kill some Germans, and then a bomb or grenade goes off, and there's just this brief pause, and then the conversation carries on normally. Mm. So that's a perfect illustration of the psychological environment that these men are in. I think it was really interesting as well that as Moreau is going through the trenches asking these questions, he ducks and covers more than any of the troops. That's right. And I thought that was really interesting visually for Kubrick to put that in. That that itself is a comment on the role of generals during the world during World War One, and and of him in particular, Moreau in particular. And I think that actor actually had that scar. I don't think that was makeup. Right. I could be wrong. But anyway, either way, it works as an interesting way to say this guy did at some point go to combat or have combat. At least that would be the inference you would make. But it's been so long ago. And, you know, now he's used to essentially being a paper pusher. And you're right, when he ducks and everything, it, it, it kind of denotes his inexperience compared with the troops who are well, in there. They're going to be tried for cowardice. They stand still while the bombs are falling around them, while he ducks and covers and then tries them for cowardice later on. It's a huge irony. The major injustice in Paths of Glory, it doesn't come from the loss of life during the raid on the anthill, but rather the decisions that are made before and the decisions that are made after by the generals. That they pursued a plan with minimal chance of success and then doubled down when it went bad and looked for scapegoats and found them and killed them. I'm awfully glad you could be there, George. This sort of thing is always rather grim. But this one had a kind of splendor to it, don't you think? I have never seen an affair of this sort handled any better. The men died wonderfully. There's always that chance that one of them will do something that will leave everyone with a bad taste. This time you couldn't ask for better. Kubrick would continue his anti-war message in two more films, the farcical Dr. Strangelove just a few years later and again in the 80s with uh, Full Metal Jacket and we're going to talk about Full Metal Jacket a little bit later. But Luke, how do you think Kirk Douglas was used in this film? I loved him in it. Mm-hmm. I fell in love with him. Did you fall in love with him when he had his shirt off? <laughs> well, I read that uh, he had it in his contract that every movie had to include a shirtless scene. <laughs> now, I don't know if that's true. <laughs> But I think that's actually interesting because the first time that we see him, he has his shirt off. And I don't think he's particularly sexualized in that scene. No, he's not sexualized, but he is very sexy. I suppose, yeah. But for me, he um, almost looks more like a living piece of artillery than, yeah. a, you know, an Adonis or like a pretty boy. And so, you know, initially in the movie, he kind of acts like a bit of a machine that follows his orders with just a few inconspicuous jibes thrown in here or there, which are almost like winks to us, the audience. But then when he puts on the formal wear to defend the three accused, it's almost as if the change of wardrobe 
ushers in another side of his character that we haven't seen. He becomes very principled and very heroic. He's almost like an Atticus Finch type mm. character. And, you know, we discover that that physical brawn is matched by this intellectualism and this real strength of, you know, the courage of his convictions. Well, that's right. Before he joined the army, he was a lawyer. Yeah. And Douglas is such a good actor that he makes that transition seamless. We never feel like his character has suddenly switched gears or changed. It was all there in the start. But as the film, you know, the, dr- the drama of the story evolves, he then is able to kind of show us all of what he is. And I think he does it beautifully. Apparently there was a lot of criticism about his performance, that he was a little overexpressive or that, oh, it becomes a Kirk Douglas movie. I think that was probably something that was probably levelled at Kirk Douglas throughout that period. Well, I think he's the best performance in the film. I, I would agree. And he has the most to do and he's the most likeable character. I think there's, I think he's given some a bit of a run for his money. I think Timothy Carey as one of the accused uh, soldiers is really brilliant as well. Who's that? He's the tall one who's crying. Oh, who's a social misfit. Yeah, and I think he's remarkable in this film as well. I think everybody is great. There was only one moment of acting that I really didn't like, or I, I think is outdated. Do you know which one I'm talking about? No. It's Ralph Meeker, and I think he's great, um, generally. But, you know, there's a bit where he is saying something and then he just breaks down and falls down on his knees. And for me, that piece of acting just didn't hold up. But everything else he does, I think, is perfect. Mm -hmm. His character is so beautiful, and I think of the three, he's the one, for me, that stands out. He certainly, I think, has a lot more uh, screen time. And also the reason he ends up there is so tragic. Mm. You know, one of them drew straws, which is tragic in itself. The other one ended up there because he was the one that I guess was the black sheep of that, his his unit. But um, he ended up there so that that lieutenant could essentially tie up a loose end. Mm. That is really horrifying. Slaves you were, and slaves you remain. But the terrible penalty of crucifixion has been set aside on the single condition that you identify the body or the living person of the slave called Spartacus. I'm Spartacus! 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 The only way that Kubrick and producer James Harris could get Kirk Douglas to agree to star in Paths of Glory was if they signed a deal with his production company, Briner Productions, and it was a pretty shady deal. It gave Douglas first refusal on the next five Kubrick projects. However, three years after Paths of Glory, Kirk Douglas fired director Anthony Mann from the film Spartacus because they weren't jibing. And he needed a director to start to step in immediately to save the production. And Kubrick came in as a favour to Douglas. And as a thank you, he released him from that stipulation in the contract. If it hadn't been Spartacus, the next five Kubrick films would have been Lolita, Doctor Strangelove, 2001 A Space Odyssey, A Clockwork Orange and Barry Lyndon. Or they wouldn't have existed, I don't think, under the the terms of this contract. Uh, And it was partly Spartacus that caused Kubrick's transition, his move to England, which made a lot of those films possible in the way that they were made anyway. Yeah, so fate took a fortuitous turn there. Amazing. Five movies, that is ridiculous. That's like signing a record contract back in the 80s and they owned you for 20 years. Yeah, it's pretty harsh. So, as I said before, Paths of Glory and Spartacus, Kirk Douglas was the star. And he needed a star. 
you know he wasn't the name but obviously after that he would become the name he still used uh, a lot of actors he used George C. Scott in Doctor Strangelove and Jack Nicholson in The Shining and Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman in Eyes Wide Shut so he still had these A-listers but in all of these films the director was bigger than the cast and I think the stars helped commercialise the content which wasn't always commercial in nature but you still get the overwhelming feeling that they're just pawns in Kubrick's vision well I think these stars, the ones that you've mentioned, were clever enough to know that, oh, I've been asked to be in a Kubrick film. This is not just about being good for my career. This is about being part of something that it will be ultimately a piece of art. And as a result, they probably shed all of their star bullshit and just came in as genuine actors wanting to give Kubrick everything he wanted. Yeah, that's right. I mean, the actors later on, they worked with Kubrick because they wanted to work with one of the greatest living directors. And I feel like you work with Kubrick, as a lot of people do with a great director or they go and do stage play or something, but it adds some kind of air of authenticity to that career. Yeah. And working with Kubrick, I mean, you can't get much bigger than that throughout cinema history you can't get much bigger than that there's so few examples of actors working with Kubrick because he made so few films all of them are so well regarded you know looking back I mean it's remarkable that you acted in a Hitchcock movie as one of Hitchcock's leading ladies not you personally Luke (laughs) but that's remarkable that that happened but at the same time there's so many examples of that at the time Hitchcock was making films, he wasn't regarded as a... I mean, he was regarded as a great filmmaker, but not as um, a genius. Mm. Kubrick was known to be a genius at the time he was making these films. Yeah. So it would have been very different signing on to a Kubrick film in, say, 84 or 92 or 2000. You know, it would have just been a very different thing. Then it would have signing on to a Hitchcock Hitchcock film film in the 40s and 50s. Exactly. Can I just say quickly that one of my favourite... Can I tell you one of my favourite lines from Paths of Glory? Yeah. I love when Colonel Duck says to Broulard, I may be many things, sir, but I am not your boy. And Broulard says, well, I certainly didn't mean to imply any (laughs) biological relationship. (laughs) I actually, that's the only point during the film that I laughed out loud. It's so funny. It was actually, uh, it was completely out of left field, <laughs> but it was hilarious. I don't think that Dax was worried that you might have thought that. <laughs> do you think, do you think that is, uh, I mean, obviously Brulard is not confused about Dax actually meaning that. He's trying to, I think, deflect what Brula, uh, what Dax is actually saying to I him. I think he's being a bit of a smartass. He's being a smartass, yeah. but he's also trying to say, you know, whatever you're talking about is not important to me. I'm going to make light of it. Yeah. Because I don't need to listen to this. His one note in the whole movie is dismissive. And, I mean, some of the things that he says are outrageous. And there is one point where Colonel Dax says, do you really believe everything you just <laughs> said to me? Yeah. You know, because it just gets, you know, there's things like, oh, there's nothing more um, stimulating than watching a murder at dawn. You said that you might have a problem with the French names. I found it incredibly awkward that it was a story about a French uh, division of the army and that they were all so American. Mm. It reminded me actually of Valkyrie. Remember that Brian Singer film that came out? Look, I've got in my notes exactly those oh, things. Okay, <laughs> so Tom Cruise played a Nazi, but it was a Nazi with an American accent, well, an American attitude. I mean, something like Paths of Glory, which is a tremendous film, but it is a, a, a story of French soldiers told in English with American references. Mm. And there's, there's a problem in that. But it, that kind of acceptance of something like that leads to absolute abortions of movies like Valkyrie, where before your very eyes, they switch from German to English in the middle of a sentence 
But then not only that, but they proceed to talk in whatever accent the actor talks in, rather than putting on a German accent in while speaking English, which, okay, still not great, no. but you can understand where they're coming from. But then to speak in an American accent, playing a German character. I mean, you and I worked for a long time in video stores, and the number of people who came in and... They returned a movie that was not in English because they didn't want to read it, right? And that was one of my biggest pet peeves of that, uh, of working there, was that people were unwilling to open their minds to something that was potentially great just because they weren't used to it. I think if you're a film fan, that's one of the things you learn not only about film, but about other forms of art. I think if you're a film fan and you encounter a foreign film or a a film that's not in your native language that blows you away you're changed forever but you need to be willing to do that first of all it's not uncommon in american films to uh change the language that's uh being spoken if it's about if if the story is about a different culture it's obviously more difficult for a non-english film to find an audience in america that's a fact but i have an aversion to these things for a few reasons firstly and foremost i don't mind reading subtitles so that doesn't turn me off at all in fact half of the time that i watch a movie at home i put the subtitles on anyway just so i don't miss any dialogue there's plenty of people who aren't like that though and they will actively avoid a movie because it has subtitles secondly i believe that films such as this one benefit greatly from increased authenticity. French soldiers speaking English is not authentic. French soldiers quoting Samuel Johnson, the English poet, is not authentic, especially when there exist countless remarkable compatriots who worked in the same fields, for instance, Arthur Rimbaud and Charles Baudelaire. For me, telling this story in English with false references depletes from that authenticity. And I think it's a pretty simple fix. If you switch the screenplay up further than what Kubrick and Harris already did and tell it from an English perspective, which is a story of English troops in similar circumstances, and make it clear that these kinds of things happened in World War I, but not noting any specifics about country, so not saying, okay, this is a story that happened in France, so we need to tell it about French soldiers. No, tell it about English soldiers. You eliminate that issue and then it becomes creative license and it's easier to stomach. Yeah, I agree. I just, I found it very distracting. Mm. I mean, you you eventually get caught up in the story and that's fine. Just on subtitles, I, I think some people, you know, there are times where I don't feel like it or I'm tired. I just want to watch a film where they're speaking my language. Yeah, but you don't feel like that your entire life. No, of course not. You know, like my favourite film of all time is French uh, and I, I love watching... Uh, foreign films but but you know some people just don't and that's fine that's okay there would have been ways around this without going the the route of making them french you know if you want to make them american that's fine this film was actually set before the u.s joined the war yeah i think a year before yeah so okay change the year that's not an excuse to to do this no that's right and all of those changes if you do that and you just tell a general story about something that's happened during the war but you don't try to tell it about that particular incident that that then as i say that is creative license that's a that's a that's a change that you can accept well this is sort of a case of kind of historical kidnapping Mm. you know you're you're taking some of france's history and you're telling a story you're making them look terrible by the way and you're doing it without considering any of the cultural nuances and historicity and traditions of that nationality of people that you're portraying in this film. If it was made today, it would be a conversation. It would make people upset. They got away with it because this was 1957. Mm. That's why they got away with it. 
and today we make excuses. Which is about was... the same year that I think Mickey Rooney played an Asian. Well, that was, I think, several years later, like maybe five or six yeah. years later. It is a case of kind of cultural hijacking, and it's not particularly comfortable. It's so odd that, you know, there would be, you know, Brulard and Moreau's walking around and they go, hello, how are you? You know, and they, they sound like, you know, Smiths and Gordons and Russells. It is a problem. The big problem for me is the Samuel Jump- Johnson reference. Yes, although I do like the quotes. That's fine. Yeah. I mean, I understand that. I, I understand that they put it in there because the quote was so significant. It meant something. Nothing really. What do you mean, nothing really? Well, sir, nothing really important. Colonel, when I ask a question, it's always important. Now, who was this man? Samuel Johnson, sir. All right, now, what did he have to say about patriotism? He said it was the last refuge of a scoundrel, sir. Uh, I'm sorry, I meant nothing personal. That quote actually made me think of a question that I wanted to ask you on air. Mm. Do you make certain assumptions of people? We've just recently had Australia Day here, by the way, folks, in Australia, and it caused a heap of controversy because uh, it's actually a day where that we're celebrating where we essentially annihilated a lot yeah, of Australia. Aborigines. Australia Day is held on January 26th, which is, I think, where the first fleet landed in Australia, and it's uh, the indication that is the, that is the day that the process of... Um, exterminating. Exterminating Indigenous people started. There were a lot of protest rallies and a lot of discussion on social media about is it really okay that we celebrate this day? Mm. And everybody has a different opinion. I don't think it's particularly great that we celebrate that day. I'm not patriotic. In fact, I'm quite embarrassed by Australia, certainly politically. I'm terribly embarrassed by Australia. And our history of, you know, what we've done to the Indigenous people makes me feel incredibly uncomfortable. And I do have kind of white guilt about that. But do you make certain assumptions of people who who tack on, you know, Australian flags on their cars or to their homes. Do you make any assumptions about the kind of people that do that? I have, I make greater assumptions about people who get Southern Cross tattoos. I think they're the worst breed of people in the world. Okay, but back to my question, because I know I've never seen an Aussie flag pinned to your balcony in your apartment. (laughs) Uh, That's a, I mean, that's a very American thing at the moment, isn't it? As well, you rarely go around the streets in Australia and see Australian flags standing in somebody's front yard. I was so surprised by how many I've seen. Around Australia Day. Yeah. Yeah, but you don't see them all the time. Yeah. Do I make certain assumptions of people? Probably yes. And what are they? If I was to make an assumption of someone with a flag, I'd probably assume that they are uneducated about, (laughs) not just uneducated in general, although that's a possibility, but uneducated about some of the things that have allowed us to live the way that we do in this country, uh, which means the treatment of the Indigenous peoples, the First Peoples, and that not only is there a lack of education about that, but there is an unwillingness to accept that that where we descended from, the people that we descended from, were the cause of that. And therefore, there should be some guilt that we feel. Well, I feel a, a little uncomfortable saying this in a kind of public platform, but I make certain assumptions, if I'm honest, uh, assumptions that these people are unintelligent and possibly racist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and racism exists in so many different forms, but I think not accepting that there's things that have happened in the past that have uh, wiped out people, not, not, not only not accepting it, but not admitting it and not going, this is wrong. Yeah. I think that is a form of racism. Well, I just question where that feeling of pride comes from. I mean, are you proud that your ancestors murdered people and then claimed stake to this land? Yeah. You're proud of murder and um, annexing people from their homes? Yeah. 
I'm not proud of that. I'm not proud about how I got to this country. I feel very insecure about it, very sad about it. As one person, I feel like there's very little I can do. It happened a long time ago, but the um, effects of it are in my current day. They're in my line of sight everywhere I look. I can see the effects of what happened, and it does make me feel very ashamed to be an Australian. Do you feel any kind of uh, nationalism when you hear something that is Australian but not necessarily about the people? So, for instance, I love the verses of the poem My Country, which is, I love a sunburnt country, a land of sweeping plains, of ragged mountain ranges, of droughts and flooding rains. I love her far horizons. I love her jewel sea, her beauty and her terror, the wide brown land for me, which is a a, a poem about Australia. And that evokes beautiful feelings and and visions of what Australia as a land is like. And, and you can look at that with while removing all of the people from that land and say, yeah, there is, there are, I mean, right now there are a huge heat wave across the southern, southern states of Australia and there's bushfires throughout Tasmania and then there are huge floods and things in northern Queensland, which is a few hundred kilometres away. So Australia has all of these kinds of wild weather and that is something that it makes you proud that Australia has so much diversity in its land. Oh, I can see why we stole it. Luke, that's a horrible thing to say. It's very pretty. Yes, it is. But no, I I don't know that I feel necessarily proud. I feel grateful that I'm here in this country. I mean, I wouldn't want to be in America right now. You know, and um, I wouldn't want to be in India. I wouldn't want to be in Somalia because I think that life there is is harder. But um, but no, pride isn't really something that I feel. But definitely think Australia is beautiful, and um, that I'm I'm very lucky. Proud, no. Okay. Pride isn't something I associate with my where I am. Well, let's say you were dating someone, like you'd just gotten to know somebody, and they pulled off that shirt and they had a Southern Cross tattoo on that chest. It'd be a deal breaker. It would be a deal breaker. Yeah. Yeah. I actually have a partner who isn't from Australia and is from Singapore originally. And he loves Australia and thinks it's beautiful, but he's very hurt by things that he reads about Muslims and people like Pauline Hanson who gain so much traction. And, you know, right now Scott Morrison is, you know, making the boat people the big issue. And really, stuff like that makes you feel like absolutely nothing has changed. That the same men who were hanging Aborigines on trees are still running things. I rise to speak about the problems of immigration from Islamic countries. Australia is one of the four settler countries. The others are New Zealand, Canada and the United States. Immigrants to Australia have enriched our society. We know that Islamic countries are organised very differently and that people from these countries hold different beliefs on equality between the sexes, homosexuality and the role of religion in society. This is a historic moment. By bringing this matter into the parliament, my party is throwing open the debate on banning or at the very least greatly reducing migration of such people to Australia. The white people from England took the country by force, killed a lot of people. I think the fact that some Indigenous people never left or reclaimed remote areas, that the white Australian government refuses to send electricity and water to, I think that's a crime. 
that there, there exist people who just want to live in in the land completely not harming anybody but on their original land which is probably something that they own now based on the number of court cases since Marbo in the early 90s but the government that got them into this mess refuses to subsidize them with the basic human necessities as they are today yeah we have gotten so off topic we have so let's move back and let's talk a little bit about full metal jackets I am your senior drill instructor. From now on, you will speak only when spoken to. And the first and last words out of your filthy sewers will be, sir. Do you maggots understand that? Sir! Yes, sir! You will be a weapon. You will be a minister of death, praying for war. Now, I will admit, I haven't watched Full Metal Jacket for years. I remember it distinctly as a film of two halves. As I think anybody does, even if they love the film, they, they remember it as a film of two halves. And I remember it as the first half being utterly gripping and terrifying and so interesting, so riveting. And the second half lacking a little bit. I think it's still pretty spectacular taken by itself, the second half. But after that first half, I don't think Kubrick did himself a, a service by putting those two halves together because I, I feel like the first half and your kind of response to that it takes a little getting over. Yeah, I mean, look, it was fascinating watching Kubrick's two war films side by side. If you didn't know that they were both Kubrick films, you would never guess they were made by the same person. You know, they're just the evolution is so extreme. Paths of Glory, every scene in that pushes the narrative forward in a very economical way. It's an extremely lean film. You know? It is. I mean, I'm shocked that they could tell that story in 86 minutes 87 minutes extraordinary like extraordinarily focused writing and storytelling in paths of glory full metal jacket breathes much more you know the scenes create a tone and a feeling for the period and place in which the film is set not every scene has a very specific purpose um in the way that paths of glory does i think the first half of full metal jacket is more easily compared with paths of glory because it is also a criticism of the internal structures and philosophies of the armed forces the second half is very much about the violent chaos and the meaninglessness of the war in vietnam and the second half of the movie could almost be more easily compared to the last five minutes of Paths of Glory, where Kubrick finally addresses the issue of war itself. One important difference is that Full Metal Jacket somewhat glamorizes war life, whilst being a critique of it. <laughs> Paths of Glory can't be accused of that. There's no glamour in what you see in Paths of Glory. It doesn't have that essential hypocrisy that sort of is in the mix of Full Metal Jacket. I think with regard to what you're saying about the two halves situation, once you've seen Full Metal Jacket and you are prepared for the impact of that scene that comes, um, which is the end of that first half, you appreciate the second half more. Because you vividly remember the scene I'm talking about in the bathroom. You know, once you've seen it, you do not forget it. You you know it so vividly. And it's, it's so remarkable. And that first half of that movie is a movie in itself. And the second half... Unfortunately, I don't think it compares as favourably to a lot of other great war films that were coming out in the 80s. And I don't know if you remember much about the second half of the film. Not specifics. So there's a character in the second half that's sort of an antagonist to... What's his name? Matthew Modine? Yeah. He's very brutal, very hard, um, has kind of lost his humanity, is really caught up in the gamesmanship of war. And I was watching it with my mum and she turned to me and she said, he's like what... That boy would have been like if he'd survived. It's almost like his ghost has come back. Yeah. His life had gone a different way. Yeah. 
And I was so struck by that thought. I thought, wow, that's a really impressive insight. Why is your mum not involved in this episode of the podcast? I know. It could have been good. Oh, well. We'll just invite all your family members on month after month and see what they're like. (laughs) The second half of Full Metal Jacket really did hit me hard this second time that I watched it because I'd kind of let go of, oh, the first half's great, the second half is middling. Full Metal Jacket, I don't want to spoil it, but it ends in a similar way, a similar moment transitional moment of horror of utter horror and that actually hit me pretty hard because i was prepared for the fact that i was there this is a slightly uneven film and the first half has a stronger emotional pull than the second yeah and and because of that i was able to enjoy it and and appreciate it on a a much deeper level than i ever have well before we talk about how paths of glory ranks against the other kubrick works let's talk quickly about his wife, mm. Christiane. Uh, she's obviously the final sequence of this film and she plays a uh, captured German girl. She's taken from her village and she's forced on stage in front of some troops who are enjoying some downtime and, and forced to perform to sing. She has uh, what vocal cords of gold or something, he says. This scene really talks about hum- the humanity that you lose in war. And anti-war films are generally about the stripping of humanity in some form, uh, whether that be the transition of an otherwise good man or woman towards amorality or the lack of value placed on human life as a whole. And we we see a little bit of both of these things in Paths of Glory. The higher-ranked officers obviously become amoral-seeking only to protect their positions. And it's really interesting, a moralistic act, which is Colonel Dax telling Brillard that Moreau ordered his artillerymen to fire on their own countrymen, is seen as a move for the general's position rather than a plea for justice to be served and those actions never to occur again. <laughs> yeah. The world becomes warped the more you ascend. No, that's so dark. We know that that's not the reason Dax has done that. No, and, and he actively fights against that charge in the movie. Yes. So, well, he, he's offered it and says, no, you fuck you. The court-martial scene where Colonel Dax tries to put into evidence the awards that somebody has one for bravery and he gets told the accused is not being tried for his former bravery but for his recent cowardice all the objections at that that court martial are so frustrating so it's really easy to see how a man would succumb to major changes of character under these which are the grimmest and most tense of situations and many men do which is demonstrated by the troops at the end of the film they're given this reprieve from battle uh, when the german girl comes to sing for them but instead of enjoying a show they wolf whistle they shout they laugh they demand that she essentially entertain them so you get the impression that they would really love if she takes her clothes off there's a website called film fisher and they state in that excellent dissection of the sequence that her tragedy becomes their comedy And it's really difficult to watch. So Kubrick really could have left it there and offered no statement on these men prior to their trials and tribulations, but that wouldn't have made his point. Instead, the girl begins singing in German, which is a language that one of the troops yells, talk in a civilised language, in reply to. And the men are silenced. And they're now thinking of their youth. They're imagining their own wives, their daughters, their mothers, their sisters. They're having a personal reaction. They're acknowledging that this could be one of those people in their lives if the circumstances were only slightly different. And tears begin to flow and therefore their humanity is restored. Uh, Which is a statement that even war, as amoral as it can be, cannot strip a good man of his basic principles. And there's another quote from Film Fisher here. And I'll provide a link to that uh, scene anatomy in the show notes. 
the song has begun begun to pacify the men, and so the frenetic pace of the editing slows as the gaze of the men moves from carnality to contemplation. As the audience, we may have judged the men as harshly and brutally as they initially judged the girl. I think it's um great that it's music because music is an abstraction that targets our emotions and it transcends differences of creed and color and race. You know, the men don't recognize the translation of the lyrics, but they recognize the tune mm. and they can hum along to that tune. And the feeling lives in the melody, not in the lyrics. So that's the common ground, how the music moves them. And it's the perfect metaphor for how, in the end, we're all just people and we're all connected by our humanity and by our emotional lives. And that Kubrick makes that point through music and without dialogue is so touching. Um, it's so stirring. I think the scene is ultimately devastating because of its implications. You know, the subtext is that even this snapshot of unification, it's not going to change anything. It's going to wear off and then life will go back to death, which is what these people are going through. And we know that death is in the future of most of the troops and that most likely rape and death is in the future of this captured woman. And so um, there's a heaviness to it and that... Kubrick subverts that expectation with this moment of unification and warmth is another stroke of genius about the ending of that film. And I also love that um, Kirk Douglas sees it happening and that he, you know, you almost expect that it's going to be a moment for him of, of something, but it's not. He just kind of walks off and goes into a building. But he does, uh, he does really beautifully. He's been given the order to return to the front lines and he says, give them a few more minutes. But he doesn't walk out on his post. He's going to continue to be a corporal. He's going to continue to, to lead his men. Well, I mean, he knows that he can do greater things in that system, I think, than out of it, because yeah. he's going to be replaced by somebody who's going to toe the line, who's going to do exactly what's asked, who's happily going to give up his own troops to, to try to get the general's position. Not necessarily, but that's, I guess, an implication. And Colonel Dax is so much like a typical Kubrick character in that it is always one man trying to take on the immoral world hmm. or a system that is so much greater than him. Kubrick is so drawn to these David and Goliath type stories, except because it's a Kubrick film, Goliath always wins. <laughs> you know? You're offering me General Miro's command? Come, come, Colonel Dax, don't overdo the surprise. You've been after the job from the start. We all know that, my boy. I'm not your boy. Well, I certainly didn't mean to imply any biological relationship. I'm not your boy in any sense. You're trying to provoke me, Colonel? Well, why should I want to do that? Exactly. It would be a pity to lose your promotion before you get it. A promotion you have so very carefully planned for. Sir, would you like me to suggest what you can do with that promotion? Colonel Dax! You will apologize at once or I shall be placed under arrest. I apologize for not being entirely honest with you. I apologize for not revealing my true feelings. I apologize, sir, for not telling you sooner that you're a degenerate, sadistic old man... And you can go to hell before I apologize to you now or ever again. Colonel Dax, you're a disappointment to me. You have spoiled the keenness of your mind by wallowing in sentimentality. You really did want to save those men. And you were not angling for Miro's command. You're an idealist. And I pity you, as I would the village idiot. How do you rank Paths of Glory amongst Kubrick's work? Well, I think it's one of his best films that I've seen. I haven't seen as many Kubrick films as I should have. I mean, 2001 is the most ridiculous one that I haven't seen. But also I haven't seen Barry Lyndon and I haven't seen The Killing and... Lolita. I haven't seen that, yeah. 
it's a very different experience from watching later Kubrick. It is different. It's uh, it, it feels almost like you can't rate them together, but you kind of have to if you're going to rate them. You need to rate them in some kind of order. You know, Paths of Glory is a great film in the way that 12 Angry Men is a great film from that era. The Shining and even Dr. Strangelove, they, for me, belong to kind of new Hollywood Mm. and I judge them in different terms. Yeah. Uh, Look, I think Paths of Glory is fantastic as well and I think it ranks really well alongside his his later works, even if it's just as a kind of curiosity and an oddity. I I still think it has an emotional honest, defiant response from the viewer. Mm-hmm. It elicits that. And that's not something that Kubrick always elicited from the viewer. You know, I still prefer a couple of others. I definitely prefer 2001 A Space Odyssey and Doctor Strangelove to this. But it would probably place in the next tier for me, which is with The Clockwork Orange and The Shining. Um, could be my third favourite of his films. Could be fifth or so. For me, I think The Shining is a bigger film in my mind than Paths of Glory. But, I mean, it's it really is. You're right. Emotionally, it's definitely one of his most, his strongest films. And, as I say, that's not something that you get from a lot of later Kubrick in the same way. And, I, look, I think altogether it's a better film than Full Metal Jacket, but I still think Full Metal Jacket is a phenomenal movie. Yeah. Do you want to let us know how it did at the when it was released? Sure. Well, it premiered in Munich on the 1st of November 1957, and it was released in the US on Christmas Day, a week after The Bridge on the River Kwai, which would ultimately win Best Picture that year. It grossed $2.5 million by 1959 against its $900,000 budget, so not the financial failure that many have written it was. Reviews at the time acknowledged the film's impact, although... Few hailed it as a masterpiece. Uh, Variety labelled it starkly realistic. The Saturday Review called it unquestionably the finest American film of the year. Bosley Crowther acknowledged the film was a frank avowal of agonising, uncompensated injustice that is pursued to the bitter end, but wrote that you are left with the feeling that you have been witness to nothing more than a horribly freakish incident. The New York Herald called it a good hard movie, powerful in design and execution. Pauline Kael didn't review the film, but she mentioned it in her essay on Lolita. She said, Paths of Glory is a simple-minded pacifist film, but Kubrick gives it nervous rhythm and a sense of urgency. Francois Truffaut managed to see the film in 1958, despite living in France at the time, and reviewed it favourably, although he wrote that the villains lacked psychological credibility. He felt that their motivation of just pure ambition was a little too one-dimensional, and I kind of agree with that. He described Colonel Dax's advance toward the anthill as the best scene, and wrote, Paths of Glory is an important film that establishes the talent and energy of a new American director. Perhaps the best review came from Winston Churchill, who remarked that the battle scenes were the most authentic he'd ever seen. In 2005, Ebert wrote The Paths of Glory was the film by which Stanley Kubrick entered the ranks of great directors, never to leave them, and that it is one of the few narrative films in which you sense the anger in the telling. I thought that was very true. In the same essay, he recalls interviewing Kirk Douglas, who told him, the pic- That picture will always be good, years from now. I don't have to wait 50 years to know it. I know it now. The film was nominated for Best Film at the BAFTAs, and it won the Silver Ribbon for Best Foreign Film in Italy, but it failed to drum up awards buzz in the US. In 1992, as you said, it was selected for preservation in the United States uh, Film Registry. Uh, and you can read more of Winston Churchill's film reviews on winstonchurchill.blogspot.com. <laughs> Oh, that's funny. Let's do a quiz. Okay. Uh, okay. 
I'll ask you a question first, okay? Sure. Adolf Menjou, who portrayed General Brulard in Paths of Glory, also starred in A Star is Born. Which version did he star in? The Judy Garland version. No. Oh, bugger. The 1937 version starring Janet Gaynor and Frederick March. Okay. In the book, what was the anthill called? The pimple. Yes. <laughs> what, which uh, famous stylistic and technical choice did Kubrick first use in Paths of Glory? The Steadicam. Yeah. More specifically, he, re- he used that reverse dolly tracking shot. Well, I get that point, Damien. Yeah, you do. Yeah. In 1939, Cobb's novel was turned into an ill-received play by Sidney, who, who was written by Sidney Howard, uh, and he was the main contributor to which epic that was released the same year? Gone with the Wind? Yes. Oh, okay. Similar question. This is not about Paths of Glory, but actor Timothy Carey portrayed one of the three court-martialed soldiers in Paths of Glory, but was fired from the project mid-shoot. He was fired from another famous film in the 70s by another of cinema's great directors. What was it? Oh, goodness, I have no idea. Uh, I will tell you, he had also been offered a role in The Godfather by Francis Ford Coppola and The Godfather Part Two, but he turned those down. And then he was subsequently fired from another, Kubrick, uh, another Coppola film. Apocalypse Now? No. Gotta give you all the hints in the world. It was the conversation. He was fired the fir- after the first day of shooting. Why? After, uh, I don't know. It does. He says that he quit, and uh, reports are that he was fired. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> but he was fired mid midway through Paths of Glory, and some of the sequences, some of the scenes with him in there are not him. Really? Yeah. Apparently, he's very difficult. Yeah. I did read that kept coming yeah, up in my he, research. He fought with a lot of directors. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. Uh, what did Humphrey Cobb think of Kubrick's adaptation of the novel? Loved it. No, he died in 1944. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's a trick question. You dirty bird. Um, I've asked you three questions. And I've asked you three, so... Are we both tied? I think you won, because you got two and I got one. Okay. Let's roll with it. Yeah. How many stars do you give Paths of Glory? Five. Mm. Yeah, I, I watched it and I told you I gave it five, but I actually gave it four and a half. And I was going to go back and give it four and a half if I had given it five. So I'm going to stick with four and a half. Yeah, I look, my only real problem with it is uh, the probably, which came up at the very end of the podcast, the one dimensional nature of the villains. You know, they're just irredeemably awful. Yeah. And that's probably not as explored as it should have been. But I think as a piece of emotional cinema, as a piece of compelling, lean, beautifully made cinema, you really can't fault it. I think the problem with four people like Kubrick and Hitchcock and Coppola is that you rate them against themselves. Mm. And so a film that by any other director would be an absolute masterpiece is less or lesser because of the other works of this director. And so you say, oh, it hasn't attained quite those standards that he achieved with Doctor Strange Love or 2001 and therefore... I can't rate it five stars. Yeah. Uh, And maybe I'm falling victim to that. Four and a half is nothing to sneeze at, Damien. Thank you so much all for joining us on The Paths of Glory. Luke, what film are we going to be looking at next month? Oh, well, I've been umming and ahhing and stewing, but I've finally decided that we're going to be looking at George Stevens' 1956 epic drama, Giant. So we're looking at 1957 this month, 1956 next month. Yes. Okay. We're living in another age. We are a better age, one would say. Come and make me boy He's coming home from the field.